It's my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be focused this morning on Romans chapter 8, verse 36 through 39. I'm going to read here in a moment this whole section because the part we're looking at is tied to that last rhetorical question, but we're going to read all of them. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Stand knowing that in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. O Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer, we turn to You And we look into Your Word this morning and we have climbed this this mountain peak of Gospel truth. Oh Lord, help us to see clearly. And Lord, imprint us so much with the glory and wonder of this truth that we can't see anything else apart from it. Oh Lord, may the gaze that You give us of Your grace and what it means for us be a gaze that we can't get rid of. Lord, help us to see reality based on what You have said. And help us to see the things that we see in light of that reality now and forever. And we pray it all in Christ's name. And for His sake, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It was billed as the unsinkable ship. And what do we know it now for today? The Titanic, the ship that sunk. The unsinkable ship that is famous for sinking. It is said that one of the crew members on board the very day that it cast off said God Himself could not sink this ship. You know, history is littered with such claims. And history is littered with the mocking of such claims. 
Saddam Hussein declared just before the conflict with the United States years ago, Iraq is unconquerable in war against the United States. And it wasn't long before his own people were toppling his statue in the city square and he was hiding in a hole to eventually be found and executed. These sorts of things, these sorts of claims, unconquerable, unbeatable. And yet again and again, we see the hubris of it all. We see the, the pride of it all. The Scripture warns us, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10.12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We are even told in James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Scripture calls us to this kind of humility. To live with a very acute awareness that there are many things that we don't have control over. In fact, it's probably more accurate to say that most things we don't have control over. We are not an all things people. We don't have a power over everything. We live in a world with the humility that much of what we see, much of what we're involved in, much of what we face are things that we do not have control over. But far too often in Christian circles, humility is tragically misunderstood and misapplied. So we start thinking that humility is sort of the idea that you're to go around saying, oh, I, I can't do anything and I, I can't be sure of anything. And, and a person who lacks confidence is, is one who is humble. And that is to misunderstand what the Bible is teaching us about Christian humility completely. Now, a part is true that humility involves a self-forgetfulness. But the self-forgetfulness that comes in our lives where we don't always put what we think and what we want and, and, and sort of our, our desires and longings in the immediate to, in first place doesn't mean that we are to be forgetful of all things. You see, a, a self-forgetfulness is necessary because without it, we do not remember what we are called to remember. If you put yourself first, and most important, you center your own self, you center your own desires, then that means that you aren't centering what is far more important. So Christian humility calls for a self-forgetfulness which clears the way for us to remember the all things God. Calls for us to remember what we looked at last week. Five gospel facts. There are some things that we're to always have in view. And those gospel facts are, are unbelievable. 
that by God's sovereign grace and what He has done, and He has done alone, He sweeps guilty sinners into His family. He declares them uh, righteous in His Son because His Son has lived in their place and died in their place. So there is a judicial declaration that stands for all eternity that those who are in Christ are declared righteous for all eternity. But He does not stop there. The picture is not just of a judicial reality, which we see in verses, uh, chapter 8, verses uh, 31 through 34. There is also a relational reality. The very God who declares you righteous in His Son is the God who welcomes you into His family. And the one who says, now Jesus is your elder brother, and you can rightly call me Father, and the Spirit indwells you. You see, those are gospel truths that we must never forget. So when we are self-forgetful, we are to be remembering the reality of God. What He has done, and what He has done remarkably for us. And that doesn't shake your confidence. It gives you confidence. See, for all the confidence that people try to act as though they have apart from the reality of God and what God has done in Christ. It is all a mirage. It is all bravado. There is no true confidence that makes any sense in the world facing the things that we face apart from a reality outside of all of us that all of us answer to. You see, in Romans 8.35, there is that last of those rhetorical questions it sounds like this who shall separate us from the love of christ and then he lists things and they are things that 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 everyone faces and he's saying including believers shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword and then he goes on in verse 36 which i mentioned at the end of the last sermon and he quotes psalm 44 Particularly verse 22. I, I said it was Isaiah last week. I, got, I, I messed that up. But Psalm 44, verse 22. And what he is doing here as he is doing this is he is he's calling us to this reality that, that all of us suffer. He's making sure that we understand that in no way is he backing off of that. He ratchets it, ratchets it, it up. He brings it up. A more stark reality than this verse we, we could not imagine. And so the first thing we see in Romans 8.36 is a promise. A promise from God. And here's the promise. Suffering. God promises suffering. Even for His children. Now, for many, that is unsettling. And apart from everything else that God says, rightly so. But let's look at this promise. Verse 36, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice the we. All of the faithful are swept into this. Sheep to the slaughter. 
He says, listen, not only is it tribulation, distress, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, our sword, that oftentimes God's people are treated as sheep who are being herded to the slaughter. In fact, about uh, about 90,000 Christians are persecuted each year, 250 a day, according to the most recent statistics. God's people know persecution all around the world, many persecution that leads to death, and many difficulties in light of it all. And we are to, we are to see and to hear this with a sense of the reality of looking the life that we actually face in the eye and realizing what God has called us to. Now, notice the phraseology there, for your sake. The suffering has a purpose. It's not in spite of God making us His children. The the, the admonition here is, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44.22 By the way, Pastor Nate opened our service with the first eight verses of that psalm. And and, and the first eight verses of that psalm give you a, a resounding sense of gratitude to God for what He has done. That's what it's doing. It's recounting the history of God acting for His people. It's specifically pointing toward the exodus, the deliverance of the people, the bringing them into the promised land, defeating their enemies. And so it says, God, You are a God who we've seen has acted for us in all of these incredible ways. And then it gets to the middle of that psalm. Psalm 44, verses 9-16 through And it says, yet in these present days, our lives are marked by suffering and persecution and ridicule and scorn. And we, the very people that you delivered, are mocked. It is a lament. It's crying out, oh God, why is it like this? So we know You are a God who delivers Your people. We know You are a God who does mighty things. But what we are facing in the present leads us to cry out to You, for where else would we go? And then the end of that psalm sounds like this. Psalm 44, beginning in verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten You, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For He who knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Oh, it is for your sake that we are being killed all the day long. And now the cry in the Psalm 44 is to redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The Scripture does everything it can 
to tell us that we, like all people in a foreign in a fallen world, will suffer. We'll face all kinds of difficulties. The children of God will face the things that all other people face. In fact, sometimes it's more intense because of one's relationship with God and the way people respond to that. Beloved, it's a promise. There's a promise of suffering. And it doesn't always make sense to us. Don't you love the honesty of Psalm 44 and the honesty of the Scriptures? Why is this happening? Oh, rouse yourself. Come. Do what you've done in the past. Do it again. There's not a loss of hope, but there is a bewilderment. We don't and can't always know why things are happening the way they do. But it's not in spite of God. The suffering we face is for your sake, O God. It is because of God. But who brings us these words in Romans? A sufferer. A sufferer who has suffered in ways that most of us in this room will not know. One who knows what it's to be is to be persecuted from all directions, including the people that he's trying to serve. He knows what it's like to be put in a prison cell and thrown in the dungeon and put in stocks. He knows what it's like to be beaten so bad that those who beat you uh, think that you're dead, and so they walk off, and it says he dusted himself off and went to the next town and preached the gospel again. It is a sufferer who delivers these words to us. And who does that sufferer tell us about? The ultimate sufferer. You you see, with Christianity, you get this amazing reality. Oh, it is blunt and honest that there is a promise of suffering. But that promise of suffering comes in light of the fact that God the Son stepped out of heaven and took on human flesh. Though he had no sin, he suffered for guilty sinners. He bore on the cross something of such a magnitude that an eternity in hell will not pay the debt that he paid on the cross. So that all those who are in him can now be described as justified, righteous, the children of God. You see, Christianity, this this reminder, this promise... You will suffer. Comes to us here from a fellow sufferer. And it's really a message about the ultimate sufferer. The one the Old Testament tells us would come. And he himself is described as the suffering servant. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Danger? No. The sword? No. To be like a sheep led to the slaughter? No! There is no suffering. That is the message that can separate us from the love of Christ. And this answer is provided in the next verse. Now it's very interesting that all of it builds toward this message of the love of Christ. These five rhetorical questions. I've already told you the answer because the answer is already implied. 
But in this last question, he answers it directly. You see, there's an intensity that this is all built to. The, The very top of the peak is that the purpose of God and and all that we've thought about in this amazing chain of salvation is that God the Son came and gave His life and is raised from the dead. And He did all of that because He loved us. And He loves us. And He is our advocate. And our testimony for those who are in Christ a gabillion years into eternity will be that we are there with Him because He loved us. This is the peak of the peak. The rhetorical question here even demands an answer because we need to understand it. You see, there is a promise of suffering, but in Romans 8.37, there is another promise that we are super victors. I told the staff this morning, that sounds like a... Marvel comic character, the super victor. It's an odd way to put it, but there's an odd word here. One thing that the Apostle Paul likes to do uh, to, to try to describe things for us theologically is he just makes up words. This is the only place this word is used. He jams some words together, puts an intensifier on the front of it, and, and you can't find it anywhere else because he's trying to put into words what is ultimately inexpressible. But we so desperately need God to communicate to us. And so we have these words like this. Look at Romans 8.37. No. That's the answer to the question. No. In all these things, in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In all these things, not some things, In all things, we are ultimately more than conquerors, our our super victors. Some translate this, uh, we, we are overwhelmingly conquerors. We are overwhelmingly victors. We are surpassingly victorious. We are hyper conquerors, hyper victors. Get the sense of it? By, By the way, everybody in this room, most everybody, knows at least one Greek word. In fact, if I were to walk around the room and and examine you today, I could find somebody who is bearing a symbolic testimony of your understanding of that Greek word. Nike. That's the word here. Hyper-Nike. Super-Nike. Why did Nike pick this particular word? Because it means conqueror and victor. So they came up with that famous swoosh. That, that is a testimony to your understanding of Greek. So if anybody ever asks you if you know Greek, you say yes. You just don't have to fill them in, it's one word. Hyper Nike, hyper conqueror, super victor. Paul invented this word. He just, stuck, he, he just took hyper and stuck it on the front of Nikeel men. And, and we have this word, but, but, but you're to feel it. Now, you are to feel it in juxtaposition on what he just said. Who are the super victors? Those who are being led like sheep to the slaughter. Those who know tribulation and suffering and distress and sword and famine. 
Those are the super victors. Sufferer, suffering victors, yes. Those who are led like a sheep to the slaughter, sheep victors. There's a reason that no athletic team you have ever known called themselves the sheep. Nobody thinks victory when they think sheep. Slow, fat, gross, dumb, the least agile animal on the planet. If he gets over on his back, he'll die if you don't flip him back over. And guess what? We are the sheep of his flock. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, that's right. But he flips us over. He never leaves us. You can imagine if if Nike shoe instead of the swoosh just had sheep on the side. They wouldn't have sold as well. But that's what's going on here. You cannot let the reality of the promise of suffering take away the promise that in Christ we are super victors. You say super victors in what? In all these things. No matter what is brought your way. And notice what he says. It's through Him who loved us. All of this is in Christ. And the bond is His love for us. We loved Him. We love Him because He first loved us. The Scripture tells us elsewhere. That's the bond. You see, we are not Stoics, of which there were many in this day that, that we just... We just grit our teeth and we're impervious to the things that happen around us. Nothing will grab us emotionally. We're the opposite of that. The reason we can face suffering and press on, the reason it's not debilitating is not just because we can grit our teeth and get through it. It's because we are in Him and He loves us. And the end of the story is that every one of us will be declared for all eternity because of Him and what He has done. Super victors. You. Oh, well, I mean, not, not me. Quit it! You! If you don't believe this, you can't live right. Don't have a half-measures gospel. Oh, oh I, you know, I believe God loves me and that gets me out of heaven, but you know, I struggle so much, so, so you know, you can't describe my life as very powerful right now and I can't really do anything and other people can do all kinds of things and I'll just... No! <laughs> I, me! This is the glory of it. Me, with all my frailty, with all my problems, with all my struggles, with all my weakness, if I'm not willing to say that in Christ I am a super victor, I am not being humble, I'm being proud. Because that's what He says. And He delights in using clay pots. We have trouble believing what he says in all these things. These, all these things only drive us deeper in Christ's love. In fact, the list of things that we've been going over are express ways to a deeper experience of the love of Christ. You know, uh, I... I've told you before, there's a particular ethicist guy who does, he says, you know, I ask these couples who are getting married, and I'll say, you know, why are you getting married? And they'll say, oh, we love each other so much. He says, how would you know? And they look surprised. 
you'll be able to tell me in 20 years, 40 years, if you love each other. It's borne out over time. If you have a healthy relationship, you know that one of the things that binds you together is you go through stuff together. And on the other side of it, you were there for each other, and that bond of love is cemented all the more. You see, the difficulties that we face are expressways into a deeper experience of the love of Christ. Now the problem is, they don't feel like expressways. They feel like we're crashed and we're on the side of the road. But we know things. And we know they are expressways. And we know that even if we feel like we are crashed and on the side of the road, that we are super victors in Christ. And this suffering is a part of His purpose to make that clear for all eternity. God's promise, suffering and super victors in all things. Now, embracing this reality produces something. We see it in verses 38 through 39. It produces absolute assurance based on unconquerable love. Look at verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that I am persuaded, I am convinced. The translation I like best here would be, for I am assured. The particular verb here is, is, is past action with lingering results. I am assured now and I will be assured in the future. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear it? As you suffer, knowing that in Christ you are a super victor, there are some things that you should have absolute assurance about. And the ultimate one of those is that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he gives a list of all those sorts of things that we tend to think in our mind can. Neither death nor life. It's pointing here to all human experience. Some of us are afraid of death and some of us are afraid of life in the present. Human experience, he says, no. After all, Romans 8.34 He said, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. For I am sure that neither death nor life can separate me from the love of Christ. Why? There is a Christ who lived for me. And there is a Christ who died for me. And there was a Christ who was raised for me. And if Christ is raised and He is the first fruits of my resurrection, then even the grave cannot separate me from the love of Christ. Then he says, nor angels, nor rulers. Not not only human experience, but the spiritual realm. Here's a reference to to angels and demons. That that which is beyond us. Can that separate us from the love of Christ? No. Here, Romans 8.34, it not only says Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. It says, who is at the right hand of God. He is in the spiritual place. He is our advocate in the spiritual place, in the spiritual realm. Oh, no spiritual being can separate us from the love of God. And then he goes on to say, nor things present, nor things to come. Time. 
And then he says, nor powers. This word means forces and authorities, most often spiritual forces and authorities, but oftentimes those that are, that are manifested in earthly authorities and powers. He says, nor powers. And then he says, nor height nor depth. Probably a reference here to heaven and earth. Or, or perhaps just simply, as far as we can think up or as far as we can think down, nothing in that realm, the spatial realm, can separate us from His love. And then he gets at the end here, nor anything else in all creation. There are no things in all the created order that can separate us from the love of Christ for those who are in Christ. No, there is no spatial reality where we are apart from Him. There is no time that can separate us from Him. There is nothing in the spiritual realm, Ken, and there's nothing in human experience. After all, Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, and get this, who is interceding for us. Oh, as we face the difficulties of earthly powers, as we face the height and the depth, are there anything else in all creation? And then what I want you to see is this next phrase in verse 39. It's really beautiful. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the word separate there, you look up in any lexicon, a Greek dictionary, it means to cause to be at a distance. There is nothing in the entire created order that can cause the love of Christ to be at a distance for those who are in Christ. Isn't that what you want? You're going through something, and those you love the most, you're like, ah, I don't want to talk to them right now. No. Those you love the most when you're going through something, you want them close. As close as they can get. There is nothing for those who are in Christ, that can cause the love of Christ to be at a distance. Well, it doesn't mean that we are giving ourselves over to it. It doesn't mean that we are thinking about it. it, it it's like sometimes you are there with one you love, but you are not there. That's us a lot of times in our spiritual relationship with Christ. But it's not because He is not there. It's because we are not looking at reality. Nothing can cause the love of Christ to be at a distance. Nothing. You see, this reality should shape all of your thinking. But it doesn't stop there. This reality is to shape all of your feeling. You see, this portion of Scripture certainly calls you to think differently and to act differently. But far too many of us think that that is the entire battle. Now, this calls us to a different re relational reality. It calls us to have our affections shaped by the reality of His love. And the fact that it is always near. It is never away from us. Here is the great news. 
You are not in control. Do you believe that's great news? Well, if you don't, I want to know the answer that you've got for tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and being led as a sheep to the slaughter. Because I do know one who has an answer to all of that. Do you understand the hubris of thinking that you can reign victorious over all of that without him? You see, you don't have an answer for those things. But the all things God does. And He calls for you to trust Him. It is really good news that you and I are not in control. After all, Romans eleven thirty six, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Would you lean into it? You see, all of these things that, 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 that tend to, to cause fear. Oh, some are so obsessed with the present and, and what I'm going through. And, and I, I, just, I, I just I don't have an answer to it. No, you don't. Lean into the love of Christ. Whatever you're going through in the present, it can't separate you from the love of Christ. Some fear death and, and, and all that is attended to it and, and are, are gripped with You don't have the answer to that, but lean into the love of Christ. Death cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Some are worried about the spiritual. Am I doing enough? No, stop it. Lean into Christ. He has done for you all that need be done. Live in light of His love. Some are worried about the past and and think they can't can't get away from what they've done in the past. Some are obsessed with the future. And both of those are our desire to control things. And when we desire to control things, we are not leaning into the love of Christ. We are trying to be Him. No matter what the past was like, no matter what the future holds, we are called to lean into the love of Christ knowing that nothing can separate me from that. No powers... Nothing in heaven and nothing on earth or nothing anywhere else. Nothing can separate us from His love. You see, all the things that elicit fear without Him are to be prompts to remember His never-at-a-distant love in Him. They're flipped on its head. Oh, tribulation. Instead of that causing me to fear and feeling a loss of control so much that I'm debilitating, tribulation reminds me of the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead who tells me that he loves me no matter what. So what is it he has for me in the midst of this? This is the secret of the courage of Christians down through the ages. But you must lean into it. You must be open to His love. You must claim the things He would have you to claim. By the way, just think about the way Romans 8 works. Romans 8.1 There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Starts out, no condemnation. Romans 8.18 For, the, for, for, for the, the sufferings of the present age aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. No comparison, Romans 8.18. How does it end? 
Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. No separation. No condemnation. No comparison. No separation. It is a story of glory. It takes a people like us through suffering. And we are delivered by one who suffers for us. I mean, what what if I said, you can live a life knowing that you can live under no condemnation. Nothing, I can guarantee you that nothing you ever go through will compare with what is to come. And you can know unconditional, unfailing, inseparable love forever. That's what Romans 8 says that a people called the church have in Christ. You see, the church is the unconquerable community. And to say that is not pride. Humility demands it. It is reality. Now and forever. In a world of titanics, don't believe any of the claims except those that God has given for His church and believe those forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for Your perfect and precious Word. I thank You for this this peak, this incredible window into sovereign, inseparable love. Oh, Lord. Help us to be wide-eyed and honest about the pain and suffering in this life. But Lord, may we see it all through that wonderful, glorious vista that You give us. That because of what Christ has done, the end of our story is that we are super victors. And we can taste that victory here and now. And Lord, help us. Help us live with the assurance that You would have us to live with, the confidence, the boldness, the courage because of Your unconquerable love. And Lord, help us to respond to these things. Help us to respond in faith for Your glory and our eternal good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.